All right, it's good to be here. Thank you. Um, are we up? We're talking about uh, living in uh, imperfect families in a distracting world. Um, I don't know your, uh, all your families. I don't know every one of you, but I will uh, pretty much guarantee that you live in an imperfect family. Uh, I've met a couple of your parents' kids and they're, <laughs> you know, a little help, you know. Uh, we'll work on them. Um, and so uh, there have been some things that I've said that this op- beginning part, your parents will have seen some of these pictures and stuff, but I want, want to introduce myself to you guys. I've been with your parents for a while, but um, uh, I've been in youth ministry for a long time. Uh, it's been over 40 years since I got my first job in youth ministry, and so that makes me like really old. Uh, but I always say I was young, cool, and relevant at one time. I was really actually... So I, uh, I, brought, I always bring this picture... Uh, find the cool youth director in that picture. I'm in there somewhere. You can find me. There you go. Yeah, that's right there. I tell people I didn't know much about Jesus, so I tried to look like him. <laughs> that's kind of all I had going for me. I had this job at a drop-in center because it was way better than being a janitor. And uh, that job changed everything. And I've learned this from that experience on, on, in my life of faith That is the greatest thing, I'll say this on Sunday to the adults, the greatest uh, things happen when you say yes to something, to something good. Uh, A small yes, when when it's a a part of what God wants you to do, can change everything. I just said yes to this simple job, and everything in my life changed. And so I've been in youth ministry ever since, and I'm no longer young, cool, and relevant. That's really obviously uh, clear to all of you. Um, But I've been hanging around kids, and I love the surprise of being with with kids and teenagers, because you never quite know. There's a story of the, um, the kid in, in uh, her elementary school who was listening to her teacher give a lecture on whales. And the teacher said, when you're in the ocean, you don't have to worry about whales. They're big and they're scary looking, but they would never eat a person. They don't eat people, so don't worry about them. Sharks you have to worry about. We now know you have to worry about stingrays, but you don't have to worry about whales because even though they're big, their throat's very small, and they wouldn't ever eat a person. And a little girl raised her hand and said, that can't be right because I learned in Sunday school that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. You know, I have a little faith conversation right there. And she said, well, no, that's, you know, that's great story, but now we think the throat's so small that they just eat fish and plankton, whatever plankton are, and so they couldn't probably eat a person like that. She said, you're wrong, because my Sunday school teacher told me that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, and I believe her. And they began to have an argument right there in, in public school. And um, after a while, they argued, and the little girl said, well, I know what I'll do. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah, how did that happen? And the teacher kind of cynically said, well, what if Jonah went to hell? Without missing a beat, she said, well, then you ask him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you never know what you never know what to expect. You never know, and so uh, uh, it's been a long time since those days. And now this is my context in my family. I introduced them to your parents, but I want you to quickly meet uh, who is a part of my family. And my family's uh, a little weird, but here we go. Uh, let's start with the youngest. Uh, we'll go with Bree. Bree is my youngest daughter, adopted from Korea, and Bree is the drama queen of the world. Everything is big, it's dramatic, it's huge. Life is great or life is terrible. People love me or people hate I mean, it was always, it still is, you know, this roller coaster. So if some of you girls in particular, I kind of like this, this roller coaster, you know, just 
write a letter of apology to your parents, okay? Because um, it, it's just hard to hang on. Um, uh, she was having a good day that day, so we took a picture. Um, uh, that's a former boyfriend, so we're going to Photoshop him out. Um, and then we go from drama to Mandy, my middle, by the way, parents. Um, sorry, I hate to do this to her, but uh, Mandy and Rowan and Jeremy made it, and they're sitting right over there. So. <laughs> He's like, oh, I hate you, Dad. Okay, um, so Mandy, uh, Mandy is more of the organized, in control, uh, in, you know, will take charge of things, you know, uh, controls more stuff than breathes like all over and, you know, her car is a mess. Mandy's much more in control, organized control. I, you know, she got married to Jeremy and I was like, Good luck with that, you know. <laughs> um, and so uh, that's my middle daughter. And then I have my oldest son. I introduced him as saying uh, he played guitar up here. Um, but he was, as a teenage boy, he might be like some of you, he like never talked much. He grunted and ate a lot and didn't really talk much. He, monosyllabic. He, he didn't form a complete sentence until he got to college. You know, and so that was him, and he's pretty even keel. He just doesn't get all that excited about stuff. Pretty even keel. Got married to Laura, and they have a couple kids that have been up here. Uh, they've been here this week. And then my, uh, uh, that's my wife, Sue. Sue and I have been married 39 years, and that's a long time. Um, and uh, so, uh, man, or we got Bree, we got Mandy, we got Ryan, and then my oldest daughter is Sharon, and she's like 45, 44. I've been married how long? 39. You do the math. Now, uh, she's not a biological child. She wasn't born to us. Sharon came to live with us and she was in high school. She was a kid who lived in a family where her parents wanted nothing more to do with her. And so while in high school, her parents said, we're done with you. And they shipped her out of the house and put her at the YWCA in Duluth, Minnesota, where I was youth pastor. And she was living in a one-room apartment as a high school student riding the city bus, trying to finish high school on her own when I met her at a Bible study that I led. And she had heard nothing about church, nothing about God. And in that experience of, of hearing about there is a God who knows her, cares about her, loves her, uh, everything in her life changed. And Sue and I brought her into our family after that experience. And she's been a part of our family ever since. So she's the, the oldest, fam, oldest child in our kind of family. And I think Ryan said it to the parents. He, he says to him, describes himself as the firstborn in the family and the second child. Because he was born, he was seven years old, and then Sharon appeared in the scene. So we got to go through that adolescent thing. She's married, has kids, Dean, three boys, and she has a teenage girl. Where's her teenage daughter? All the way over there. <laughs> that sort of happens. Um, so that's my family, um, and I've got uh, some grandkids now, which means I'm totally old. Uh, but they're the cutest grandkids in the world. So that's 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 Ella. I keep that just because I love that picture. And then this is Ella and Kaylee um, getting ready for Halloween a year or so ago. I have a great one. I showed the parents, and I just realized all of a sudden I realized I I didn't have that one on this set. Um, of, uh, of pictures of the three of them, which I really love uh, last, this last fall. But I have one of Rowan. Uh, Rowan was, was it 11 weeks early? 11 weeks early. Um, and so this is a picture of Rowan on his first day. Um, scary day. Actually, I was speaking at a camp in northern Minnesota 
the day that uh, Manny went into labor and drove down, saw her, drove back, had to speak, had the baby, drove back down, and that was Rowan the first day. Little guy, but he's doing great, and he's up here, and we're excited about that. Um, and so this is my, what my family got me for Christmas. They're telling me I'm getting a little old. So they gave me these remotes. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about being in a family and being an imperfect family and talking about faith, that kind of stuff. But let me show you a little girl, uh, do a little devotional to get us started. This is a little Zoe, and watch the, the innocence. And uh, the, watch Zoe here. I love the innocence of that. That girl did not worry if she was in tune or if you liked the song, she was just singing. And you know what? We start getting too smart for our own goods. And all of a sudden you start worrying about what other people think and whether you're cool enough and whether you got the right stuff. And all of a sudden you lose all the opportunity to just simply love something and, and be bad at it. Isn't that great? And so parenting is like that. I want to talk to you a little bit about family life. And I, I, I said this uh, this morning to your parents, so they will tell you that they're the exception to this. This is three things I've learned about parents that I think include your parents. Here's the first thing they are, is they're untrained for the job. And here's the way I can show you that. How many of you kids are the oldest child in your family? Look around the room. You're going to need therapy. Because if you have younger brothers and sisters, your parents have changed the rules, right? Just makes you mad, doesn't it? How many of you are the youngest child in the family? Woohoo! Yeah, that was me, baby. Uh, you know, because we just pretty much know our parents are trying to figure it out. Uh, I was four, you know, I, I, you know and, and my, my parents didn't notice me. I did, they didn't see pictures of me. Because I'm, I'm the youngest of four. It's like, whatever. You know, I didn't wreck stuff. I was fine. I walked in the room. My dad said, you're walking, tiger. I said, I'm four, dad. Pay attention. 
See, that's what happens. I'm, it, we're untrained for this job. I showed this picture that adults liked it, so I'm gonna show it to you. Uh, visual people are gonna hate me, but here we go. This is called bad parenting. <laughs> no ducks were harmed in the filming of this. But that's what, that's what the oldest children feel like, you know? They keep walking me over the grate and they make mistakes and they're untrained. In other words, they didn't quite know what they're doing, but they're doing the best they can. The other thing they are is they're tired because you're very tiring. I don't know you personally, but parenting is tiring. They're tired of conflict. They're tired of, uh, you cost a lot of money, by the way. <laughs> this is just something I just want you to know. The last study I read said the average kid from birth to age 18 costs their parents, you want to take a guess? Want to take a guess how much you cost? From birth to 18, not counting college. $30,000. You're only off by $220,000. $250,000 is the average. That means some of you are way above average. Uh, that's, a that's a quarter of a million dollars. So I want to ask you kids a question. Are you worth it? <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a bad way to look at you. <laughs> I have four kids. I'm like, that's a million bucks. Holy cow. <laughs> It's a bad way to look at you, but you're more, you know, you're worth 250,000. But they're tired of, the, of all the stuff and it's just tiring, which means that sometimes they're crabby, right? And the last thing is they're scared. They wanna do a good job. Every parent I know of, any parent who comes here wants to do a good job. And they're, but they're, we're sometimes scared we're not doing a good job. We're not sure what to do. It's hard to admit it. Um, Subaru uh, tapped into that in terms of how they're, they still, they want you to get older and be mature and then they are afraid of you getting older and being mature and taking on responsibility. Uh, watch how they, they played on that in this little ad. So uh, your seat good? Get the mirrors all adjusted so you can see everything okay? Just stay off the freeways, all right? I don't want you going out on those yet. Just leave your phone in your purse. I don't want you texting. Daddy, right? okay. Okay, there you go. Be careful. Thanks, Dad. Call me, but not while you're driving. We knew this day was coming. See, that, it, that's, that's what parents, they want you to move there, and yet it gets a little scary. So we're going to, parents act weird sometimes, folks. Yeah, that just happens. We're untrained, tired, and scared. Uh, it, we're survivable. Imperfect families, are, are you going to make it? Because what I've learned is that Parents do matter. Wait, I forgot this, this one here. Parents matter. Um, and uh, parents have an influence on you in ways that you might not even be aware of. And I just quickly showed you the picture. Ryan is my oldest son. He's, all my kids are influenced by me in certain ways, positive or negative. Ryan, probably more than others. He sounds like me, personality kind of like me. Uh, we have similar things. And for a while, uh, they, people would say we sort of looked alike. <laughs> That was a, yeah, I'm sure you cut it out. It was, on, it was about 12, 15 years ago. We made the cover page of the Minneapolis paper for Father's Day lookalikes, father's son lookalikes. And we made the cover page. We turned it into a contest. We're like, yeah, we made the cover page. You know, I blew it up, put it on my computer, put it in my office, and Ryan threw his under the bed. But um, <laughs> it was pretty emotional for the both of us. But your kid, kids, I'm going to tell you something, I've um, been doing this a long time, you're going to turn out more like your parents than you think you are and wish you would. 
It's a bummer. It's really depressing. You're going to be more like your parents than you think. Uh, here's a video of, uh, from Britain's Got Talent about a father's son. Watch the proud father and watch the influence father to son and see if you see any similarities. Ladies and gentlemen, many years ago in Cyprus lived a man who loved to dance. He would dance for the villagers and the villagers loved to watch him dance. Well, ladies and gentlemen, tonight, here for one night only, would you please welcome Mr. Stavros Flatley. Dad, the dad's about to have a heart attack. Uh, <laughs> see the proud father look? You're going to turn out more like your parents than you think you're going to be. I'm sorry, I hate to tell you that. You know, uh, that'll be part of your therapy. But um, I, I, that's part of what families do to us. They're part of the way that God designed life so that we would be influenced by that family. So in, in a tough culture, uh, I want to think with you about what that means. Because we live in a distracting culture. And that's one of the things about this culture. We live in a culture of distractions and change, all kinds of change. And sometimes it gets, you know, kids, you're more used to change, but change is happening all the time. Uh, Best Buy tapped into that uh, with this quick little commercial that they did a few years ago. Um, well, maybe, no, oh, maybe it's my video's not working. All right, one doesn't work. Anyway, see, distractions and change. Doesn't, doesn't work. The other thing about our culture is incredibly busy. Not only are adults busy, but I hear more and more teenagers talk to me about how life is so busy, that, that there's a stress of, of one thing added onto the other and uh, feeling overwhelmed. And that distracts us from just being who we're supposed to be. 
Life would be simpler if our calendars were simpler. Like this, little prehistoric calendar. I think this, I love this far side cartoon. <laughs> Every day, one thing, kill something and eat it. What are you doing next Tuesday? I gotta kill something and eat it. After that, I'm totally free. It would be easier to have a spiritual life or friends. I mean, all kinds of stuff would be easier, but our lives aren't like that. We live in a world of busyness. And we live in a world that is starting to teach our parents and us what I call a core parenting value. And I want to say this out loud to both of you so that maybe you can have a conversation about this. Um, the core parenting value is basically this idea that every culture uh, has this primary value that is not written on anybody's refrigerator wall or anything, but it's just inside the culture it says, mom and dad, this is your, this is your job. You have a job. Whenever, when you raise your kids, this is what you're supposed to focus on. And cultures over time have had these. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, it's answering the question, I want my child to be. And then you ask the parents, and the average parent in that culture would say, I want my child to be. If you were to, I would argue, as I've studied, if you were to look at the Japanese culture, and you ask that question of parents in Japan, they would say, I want my child to be successful. They are driven in that culture that mom and dad, your top job is to ensure that this child works hard, honors the family, and is a success. And since World War II, who's been the, great, the most successful economy uh, in shaping itself has been the Japanese culture. By the way, huge price on pressure. Talks about pressure on kids. You think you're under pressure, kids? That, that generation is huge under pressure. People pull away called cocooning. It's a whole huge thing. But why? Because mom and dad feel their top job is to be sure their kid is successful. If you were to go to Korea, as we did with our daughter, because she's from Korea, and we got to meet people, we talked to them, we heard the core parenting value in Korea. I want my child to be educated. It is non-negotiable. Oh, there it is, educated. Learn how to use a clicker. Um, everything about that culture is education. They laughed at our kids at how little we went to school. We argue for a day or two here in Minnesota. Doesn't matter. They go like 10 and a half, 11 months out of the year. And they go the month they're not in to get ahead of those who go only 10 and a half or 11 months. Because that culture, mom and dad, top job, get that kid educated. Everything is about education. And that's the top core parenting value. There are other ones, but that's the top one. There has become a top core parenting value risen up in the last 15 to 20, 30 years in American culture that I think is affecting every family here. And is this, I want my child to be, the average American parent would say, I want my child to be happy. happy. I'm gonna suggest to you that's the downfall of American culture. Because when I was growing up, my parents wanted me to be good. They didn't care if I was happy. <laughs> in fact, they pretty much ensured I wasn't gonna be happy. Because they, they believed their job, whatever good meant, moral person, that, that was their top job. Now it's happy. And here's my question to kids, to parents. How are we doing? How happy are we? As a culture, uh, I've worked with kids all of my adult life. And I'm seeing more kids who aren't happy. If that's our top goal, parents, if that's been the culture that says that's our job is to ensure that every one of these kids is happy, and I don't think, can you find me any statistic that says in America in 2014 we are happier 
than 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago? Can you find anything? I can't find anything. There's no statistic that I can find that says that we're raising happier kids. So here's my, my, my wondering. I say it out loud just to create a conversation. Either the goal is the problem or how we're getting to the goal. Is, it's it's got to be one or the other. Either the goal is, is an issue or the method we're using to get to that goal is the problem. And I just, it, I, I struggle with this because if happiness is it, then how are we trying to get there? I'm gonna throw this out again for conversation. I think, and I say this to kids when I do uh, weekends with them, I think the method that our culture is telling us that the way we get happy, the way you and I are gonna feel good about ourselves, the way we're gonna feel secure in who we are is what I call the four Ps. That if I've got the four Ps, if I've established the ability to have the four Ps, then I will have a sense of satisfaction. I will have a sense of happiness. I will, I will be okay with myself. I can put my head on the pillow at the end of the night and feel like I'm, I'm okay. And the four Ps are this, personal looks. The culture says that you're, you, feel, you need to feel good, you can feel good based on how you look. Uh, all kinds of pressure about that. And in adolescence, it's huge. And so we wrestle with how do I... How does my look affect how I feel about myself? How does that work? Um, what is that, what's the pressure of the clothes you wear and the brands you own and the weight you have and all the stuff that's part of this defining ourselves of personal looks? And by the way, kids, this is not just a teenager. I'm not talking to just teenagers. Everyone in the room, middle age. Why does this midlife crisis occur? Much of it's around personal looks. The greatest growth in elective co- is in surgery today is elective cosmetic surgery by people my age who do not want to look like me. <laughs> it's not supposed to be that funny. But that's what happens. People are saying that I will feel better about myself if, and again, there's all kinds of reasons and all kinds of options. People are like all kinds of, I'm just suggesting that when that becomes a driver of my definition of myself, that's skating on thin ice, folks. Because sometimes you can have a really bad hair day, can't you? You can have a zit up here. And it's like everyone makes, and if your definition of who you are is based on your look, that's scary because that's thin ice. It's, it works for some of you. I just, let me just give you a simple example. I mean, I'm not immune to this. Um, one of the little girls who was on my boat today and uh, rode on the thing uh, was uh, swinging in the swings. And... Um, uh, I went over to her and I, and I reached out and said, how you doing? And she goes, what is wrong with your hands? They look really weird. I have a skin disease called vitiligo. It started to appear when I was early 20s. Folks, if, if my sense of who I am is based on things that I cannot control, which is the vitiligo disease that I have, it's a shaky place to live. And yet we have people who are not happy because they have not managed this or something is wrong with that part. Their hair is curly and they want it straight and they're straight, straight and they want it curly. It's blonde and they want it. I mean, it's, it just becomes this struggle to define how can I feel okay? The culture says change the look, deal with this, control that, manage that, and then you'll feel good. Then you'll know you're okay. The second is performance the ability to perform. And again, it depends on who you're trying to impress as to how, what performance looks like. It may be uh, that sports would be it. But again, 
it's, it's, I'm not suggesting that any of these are wrong. Looking good is not a problem, basically. Well, the rest of us resent you, but uh, it's okay. And, and being, doing well with that is not a problem, but it's when you can't get past that, when your definition is stuck there is when it becomes a problem. Performing well is not a problem. Having talent is not, that's a great thing. Being really good at a sport is a great thing. But if you can't define yourself beyond that, watch what happens to people whose definition is based on performance and then they get two, three, four, five years older and they can't manage it the same and all of a sudden their sense of themselves crushes down. It's not about performing well, it's about defining yourself by performance. But see, it might be performance by sports, it might be music, it might be theater, uh, it might be church. Uh, it might be a party, might be being the class clown. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you and I perform to people's expectations in order to feel good about ourselves. And again, be very aware of the fact that performance and personal looks are usually based on our sense of what other people say, think about us. So we're helping create the definition based on what we think they think of us. And that gets tricky. So, personal looks, performance. There's a quiz at the end, so remember, stay with me. Uh, it's, first one is what? Personal looks. Second one? Performance. It's right up behind me if you can't remember it, okay? Uh, number three, popularity. My sense of myself will be based, if I'm okay if I am popular. And again, popularity is defined by the person needing to be defining it. It might be one person. You want one person to notice you, a boy or a girl, to notice you, and then you'll be okay with yourself. Then you can lay in your head on the pillow and you'll be happy because they've noticed you. You're in the right group. You're at the right lunch table. Um, and by the way, it happens to adults too, workplace, all kinds of ways in which we trip over this. Um, but again, other people then own you. Um, they define you and they control you. And the last one is possessions, stuff. I'll be happy if. What happens in this game of this is, play, is the if only and when I game. If only I, and then you fill in the blank. If only I could look like that. If only I could do that. If only they would like me. If only I had that. If only, if only, if only. Then I would be happy. That's where it, what happens. Or when I, when I get my license then, when I get my job, when I get out of school, when I get my degree, when I get married, when I have my own house, when I can retire, then, then I can feel good about myself. But again, that, it's a slippery slope. The four Ps, the problem with the four Ps is they get really close to what we really need. I said this to parents, every one of us in this room needs to know we're loved, we're valuable, and we're not alone. Somebody loves us, that we have value, and we're not alone. And the four Ps get really close. You score the winning basket, man, you are, that's awesome. But guess what? Next week, if you don't, it's all gone. Because the four Ps get close to telling you you're okay, but you're only okay for as long as you either perform well or look good or are with the right people or have the right stuff. And that's what makes it so tricky is it's really close and none of them are bad in and of themselves. Having stuff is not a problem. But defining yourself by your stuff becomes a problem. Looking good is not a problem, but defining yourself by what you look like might be a problem because you might get vitiligo. And then all of a sudden you're gonna have to say, how can I put my head on the pillow and feel good about myself? It's a struggle. 
Um, and so part of the world in which what families about, by the way, marketers spend millions of dollars looking at this culture and looking at this, uh, us in this room, figuring out how we can get us to buy stuff and watch how, I'm just gonna give you a couple examples. Uh, Best Buy, their ad campaign, you, happier. You go to Best Buy, buy a flat screen TV, you'll be happier. You wanna go buy me a flat screen TV? I'd be happy, go for it, do it. But if my happiness is based on the size of my screen in my basement, I'm skating on very thin ice. That will not hold me up when I get a diagnosis. That will not hold me up when life hands me hard stuff. That will not hold me up if, if there's something else that goes on. It's not bad, it's just I can't define myself by that. But Best Buy wants me to, that's how I'm gonna go in there and spend money. Now, I have to tell you tonight, I'm a Coke addict. I'm not that kind of Coke addict. I'm a, um, I'm a Coca-Cola addict, this addict. This is my drug of choice, man. Why would they make Pepsi? It's just useless. But, uh, and so, and yet this is their na international ad campaign, open happiness. Seriously? Yeah, <laughs> kind of, yeah. Uh, in a very short-term sense, yes, kind of. But I love that they, they're tapping into this thing, this desire for us to be happy, open happiness, buy it. Buy a can uh, for a friend and together we can be happy. Isn't that great? But it, it's just skating on thin ice because it lasts so short. Uh, how about this one? Um, whatever makes you happy. <laughs> now, uh, you want to put me, well, you particularly put my wife on a beach in a warm place and she's pretty happy. She's actually a lot of fun when she gets out of state. Uh, she's, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you know what? We live in Minnesota which means depression seven months out of the year, if this is the only way we're gonna get happy. Um, uh, another one, your happiness just went up 20%. Just a few examples of how marketers know what we're up against. So the culture says our job is to be happy. And the culture says the way you do that is the four Ps. Right, quiz time, anybody? Personal looks is number one. Second, performance, popularity, possession. Sam again, personal looks. Performance, popularity, possessions. Here's the thing to note about all of those four things is they're all external. They're all outside of you. They're all from the outside. I define myself by what you think of me, by how, what I'm wearing, by the stuff I'm driving, all that kind of stuff. I would argue that God has a different view of you. And it has nothing to do with how cool you are or how popular you are or what you look like uh, or whether you have vitiligo or not. And God's trying to say, your value to me is from the inside out. Your value to me is Psalm 139, that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Your personal looks can be part of just simply your recognizing and appreciating, and by the way, doing a good job of taking care of the gift that God has given you. So again, I'm not opposed to looking good and staying healthy and eating right and exercising and all, because all of that is managing a great thing. But our sense is our value is not based on what the mirror tells us. Our value is based on what God tells us, which is you've been fearfully and wonderfully made. From the beginning, there's something about you that is totally unique. That will, that will produce something that's stronger than the kind of happiness based on the external. Or uh, that, that it isn't that we do all this cool stuff, but that maybe... It's the truth that God first loved us. And maybe it's just simply this recognition. I, I love John 10, 10. It's a simple verse. Sunday school, we talk about it a lot, but I love the simplicity of it. And here's simply how I want to end. John 10, 10. 
The thief comes to steal and destroy. And I would argue that the four Ps will steal your life, not give you life. That the four Ps will eventually just start to suck your happiness out, even though it's pretty close. The thief comes to steal and destroy, but Jesus said, I've come to give you life. And life more abundantly than you'll find it anywhere else. And I don't know about you, but I'm old. You're, some of you are young. But I want, and I think you want the same thing, I want life. I want a life that has meaning. I want life that has relationships. I want life that has clarity. I want life that has purpose. I want life that has passion. Don't you want that? Don't you want a life that, that you can feel like you can experience, that has some value, that you're out going, trying stuff, enjoying things? Your happiness isn't based on what other people think of you. It's your confidence in knowing who you are. And I love this simple idea that I've come to give you life. And your family that you have, imperfect as it might be, is a place for you to just experience that. And together, you're gonna figure out what life is like. Your life as you move into adulthood, our life as we get older and try to figure out what life is like for us. And, and tomorrow I'll talk to the parents a little bit more about some storms that we face on the journey. But the strength of it all comes from within, not the outside. The four Ps will never give us the happiness that we each want. They won't really remind us or won't really tell us if we're loved, we're valuable, and we're not alone. But if we connect to the one who created us, then we got a possibility of hearing a good news that, for me, gives life. So with that, we want to just have some time for conversation about that. We'll have some questions. Let me pray real quick, and then um, we'll uh, move to the next thing we're going to do. God, thanks for um, being with us even if we don't notice you. Thanks for caring for us even when we make mistakes. Thanks for uh, pursuing us even when we wander away. Thanks for loving us even when we're imperfect and we don't look good and we don't perform well and nobody likes us. Thanks for all that stuff. And we pray that we would uh, recognize that family are part of that message in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for a chance to talk to you guys, and now we're going to get in a small group. <laughs>